Here's a truism about shopping. Some things are so good, you'd do anything to get them. For Ida Wara, who lives in Ottawa, that thing worth traveling for was a croissant. It was even worth driving to a different city to get it from one specific place. It was very, very buttery, and only that patisserie in Gatineau made that type of buttery croissant, but they also had thyme inside the croissant. So that had very special taste. But that treat wasn't the only thing she drove out of her way for. In fact, for years, Ida's picky tastes led her to drive as much as 80 kilometers a day to different stores in different cities just to get the exact items she wanted. The best free-run organic eggs, the freshest artichokes, and of course, that perfect croissant. The pandemic forced Ida to limit her trips out of the house. And that's when she realized maybe that amount of driving for shopping was all too much. It may seem obvious to say now, but what makes this revelation even more surprising is that Ida is actually very environmentally conscious in her day-to-day life. She conserves water religiously, is constantly minding the heat and the air conditioning in her home, and avoids single-use plastic. She even runs an ecological organization called Gentle Ways for Our Planet. This is when I realized, what was I doing? What was I thinking? I was not taking the time to reflect on what I was doing. I guess I had a blind spot there. These days, Ida takes her time to think before going shopping. She asks herself if a purchase is necessary or if it can wait. If she decides she really has to travel to shop, she asks if she can do other tasks nearby at the same time. It's the pause, really. It's the power of the pause. The main lesson is to to not resist the pause and to use it more fully. We don't often think this way when we shop. To pause and think how much or how quickly we really need something. And that's actually by design. Shopping has always been about getting products to people as quickly and lucratively as possible. For tech companies working in online retail... This obstacle has a techie name, friction. They believe friction is the enemy to our convenience, and that virtually nothing should get in the way from the process of thinking about buying something to sliding smoothly into the sweet satisfaction of getting it into your hands. And why shouldn't things just get more and more convenient? Isn't this what society has been working toward? But friction can actually, maybe weirdly, be a productive feeling. Friction can tell you that you need to stop, and think. Maybe it's easy to get in my car and go to Gatineau for a croissant, but is it worth it in the grand scheme of things? Friction can offer a moment to consider the benefits and consequences of our transition from buying in brick-and-mortar stores to increasingly convenient online shopping experiences. And with inflation sending the prices of so many things soaring, and the pandemic breaking so many of our mysterious supply chains, maybe a pause to reflect is exactly what we need. So in this week's episode, we're going to look at retail. How does it actually work getting you your stuff, particularly in our shift to e-commerce? How are businesses able to offer us even quicker delivery times than ever before, sometimes within even 15 minutes? And what is that doing to our main streets? How we shop now will have an effect on how our cities are shaped and how people in them live. So let's not wait for the bill to come due to ask these necessary questions. I'm Adrian Lee, and this is City Space. 
Josue Velasquez-Martinez is the director of the MIT Sustainable Supply Chain Lab, as well as the director of MIT's Low Income Firms Transformation Lab, which is aimed at alleviating poverty in Latin America. Between those two jobs, Josue understands the ins and outs of retail markets around the world and the importance of getting things to where they need to be, as well as all their potential consequences, from the environment to the ecosystems of small businesses everywhere. Here's our conversation. I think the common understanding is that e-commerce and online shopping as it currently exists is bad for the environment. And, you know, why not, right? You can see the packaging. You can see the waste that comes from that. You can see the delivery vehicles that clog the roadways. You know, these are things that customers can see or perceive and assume it means it must be worse for the environment than brick and mortar. But is that true? Well, not necessarily. The reality is that under certain conditions, actually going to the store, to the brick and mortar channel, it could be actually worse for the environment. And the reasoning is because you need to account for the environmental impact of all the passenger movements. So depending on the type of country, city, it could be that certain cities in Europe, people might use probably bicycles. But in general, to assume that people are using passenger cars. So the understanding of this is as multiple cars go to single stores to buy. And that tend to be less environmentally friendly if you compare it to a specific vehicle developed to conduct the cargo, having multiple deliveries in the same neighborhood. How often does that happen, though? Because what you're describing there is consolidation of trucks. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And that's actually the key. The thing is that, as you were saying at the beginning, the current uh, situation of e-commerce, it seems that it does not allow for this consolidation to happen because now we have like this strong trend of fast shipping. So the more the companies are willing to offer same-day delivery, two-day delivery promise, three-day delivery promise, so it's less time for logistics to improve consolidation. And that probably implies that a truck may travel multiple times to the same neighborhood in one week, which in turn also increases the carbon emissions associated with that delivery operation. So what are some of the upsides and downsides, environmentally speaking, of brick and mortar versus the upsides and downsides of online shopping then? In general terms, the disadvantages for the environment of the brick and mortar is mainly driven by what the consumer is doing during the day. In the worst case scenario, consumer may drive, buy something, so there are emissions associated with that operation. Then later, that consumer may take the things back and then try them, and then she or he does not like it, then can actually do another return. And then those emissions associated with those operations are, in my view, the main disadvantage. Advantages is that the returns probably tend to be higher when you are in e-commerce because you are buying online, you are not trying on the things. So usually it means you are taking higher risks that actually may create higher emissions associated with that type of shopping. And I think what we're talking about here is what folks call last mile, right? The the last mile of, of the process of retail. Can you speak to that and why this is such a big deal environmentally? So last mile is probably the most expensive part of the logistics operation. It is very costly and refers to the movement that occurs either from the distribution center or from a specific retail store to the end consumer. And that operation, it's very intense, mainly because we observe a couple of things happening in the world. One is the growth in urbanization. So you get like cities that are more dense, it's more complex to actually travel, it's more congested. And the second is the growth in omnichannel or e-commerce. So consumers in the past would just go to the store and that would be like the way to also forecast and balance supply and demand. But now you actually have the challenge that a consumer can place orders in any device from different parts of the world. So here in Boston, I can place an order that uh, I'm going to order some tequila from Mexico to send it to you in Canada. And that creates much more complexity as well. 
More on that after this. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For 100 years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. If I look at my own shopping habits over the last 10 years, there are things that I have come to expect. Part of that is because major players like Amazon have made us expect deliveries in you know less than 48 hours. People are trying to make it as frictionless as possible. I think what happens in that frictionlessness is people ignore things like the environment, the, the cost of last mile shopping. So is there evidence that consumers will actually give up some of the things that we've come to expect out of convenience? So this is one of the key projects we've conducted here at the MIT Sustainable Supply Chain Lab that we call the, the Green Button. This project, we were able to test certain uh, hypotheses related to whether a consumer is willing to delay their deliveries by considering the environmental impacts. So now the question here is that there are certain assumptions in terms of green consumer behavior that uh, relates to who is this person that actually is willing to wait. Then usually you will find evidence in plenty of studies in research that comments women are more sensitive to uh, make environmentally friendly decisions, the same as people with higher level of education or higher income. But what we observe is that this depends entirely on the way that we are displaying information. Right? So what we did, we actually ran an interesting project retailer in Mexico, Copel, one of the largest is like the Mexican target. And what we did there is that we first captured what were the intentions of consumers. So during the home delivery, consumers place order either via e-commerce or brick and mortar. We actually were able to conduct a service at the moment of the delivery to capture whether the consumer will have been willing to wait for that particular package. And what we observe is that with economic incentive, 70% of them were willing to wait. Now, there was a difference from those that we provided information in terms of kilograms of CO2. When we said, for instance, if you're willing to wait one day more or two days more, we are able to actually save emissions of 30 kilograms of CO2 per day that you're willing to wait. But other segments of the same consumers in the same neighborhood were provided like, if you're willing to wait one day, we are going to be able to save 25 trees, which is the amount of trees that we will need to offset, right? Or to capture that amount of CO2 that otherwise will be released to the atmosphere. So when we share this information, the difference between kilograms of CO2 and trees is significant. Every time we ask kilograms of CO2, we got only 40% will be willing to wait versus 90% in the environmental statement. Now, we actually managed to convince Coppel to uh, implement an experiment in two cities, Mexico City and Monterey. And we actually observed not just the willingness, but the actual decisions. While we didn't get the 71% we got before, we got 52% consumers. Once they were provided information of the environmental impacts of the fast shipping decisions to delay their deliveries, once they were given this information. And I believe this, of course, gives a lot of opportunity for the companies because instead of delivering in one day, the average was 4.56 days. So now you have a window to deliver, which helps you improve the consolidation and, of course, reduce plenty of emissions released to the environment. The other piece of when we talk about friction is also labor practices, right? We hear a lot about online shipping, last mile delivery being very demanding, increased numbers of shipments out at a given time. Is that something that you think consumers are considering as part of this broader package of reinterpreting retail? Well, I believe there is an opportunity. This stage, I don't think the consumer is really provided with enough information by the companies to make informed decisions. 
right? I believe at this stage, you get sometimes some displays. Like in the past, I remember when Amazon was offering it for the Prime members, the two-day delivery promise, which was the fast shipping at the time. This is 2017, probably 18. At the time, they will say, well, if you have no rush, I'll give you $6 of a gift card to buy in Amazon fresh. And that incentive that will say, well, I will give you these $6 and you will give me one week more to deliver. But that option, which is also using economic incentive to drive the consumer, was more like a commercial strategy to you know, get the consumer more into the platform to buy more things. I'm sure logistics was very happy to see those things, but it was more on that side. Now, you can find now on Amazon the option of fewer boxes. Now, they say, well, if you are willing to delay your delivery, wait one week more or so, I'm going to be able to consolidate and send you less boxes for your orders. But at this stage, nobody really knows when you're placing an order, what is your carbon footprint of that decision? How much I'm actually helping companies or Amazon by delaying the deliveries, nor in that or any other. Like if you will get that information, like transparency of what's going on, it's very likely consumers will actually be willing to make decisions in a way that will not just serve their own expectations, but at the same time also helping environment or in general society. Thanks to Jose for joining us. Next up, We'll move from weighing the environmental costs of how we shop to the life and death of our brick and mortar with the rise of something called dark stores and how they may be changing the look and feel of our main streets. More after this. Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, a hundred years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, Rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. If you live in a big city, you've probably seen this. Companies that want to deliver you groceries at what's basically warp speed. An hour, half an hour, even 15 minutes. How are they making this e-commerce on steroids happen? Well, a lot of them are built on what's called dark stores, which are effectively small warehouses on public or even main streets in city cores. Meaning they look like storefronts, and they live where other storefronts live. Except you can't go inside. Alex Bitterman is a professor and the chair of architecture and design at Alfred State University of New York. We talked to him to understand this phenomenon, the cost of it all to city life, and whether these dark stores are here to stay. You know, other than the role of shopping as being for acquiring goods and services, what are the civic role of shops and retail in a city, as they have been for as long as there's been capitalism and trade? I think the key word there is as long as there has been. Part of the amazing thing about shopping for us is that it is not a new phenomenon. So we view it through our lens of today and how we perceive shopping today. But actually, shopping and the marketplace has been with us not just for decades, not for centuries, but for millennia, pretty much about 4,000 years. And really, the marketplace, along with religion in shaping ritual and religious buildings, is one of the things markets shape cities. So they are a social center, they are an economic center, and they are and have been an important piece of the way our cities and buildings in those cities have evolved over the years. 
let's talk about how things have changed then. Things have evolved over the course of how retail works. I mean, we've had centralization into big box stores, for instance, and that has been going on for roughly 50 years now or so. What has changed and why are we seeing sort of all of a sudden this change happening? The nature of retail has certainly changed, especially since World War II, and it has evolved very rapidly. The nature of buying and selling hasn't really changed much over thousands of years. So I think what we often sort of conflate those two things, and one is sort of a basic economic premise, the other is really more a social construct. The big thing that I've been tracking that has shifted socially is I think it's the lack of necessity to go to a physical place to shop. So for the first time, again, in our human history, we're at the very beginning of being able to shop from a distance. So technology has now sort of caught up to the place where we're able to shop a very broad and wide selection of items from the comfort of our own home. So that to some degree has made or perhaps will make stores over time, physical retail bricks and mortar stores, somewhat redundant as we continue sort of on into this brave new world of shopping. Now, there will definitely be folks who hear that and say, well, that's fine. Brick and mortar shopping has been on the decline well before the pandemic. You know, the Internet has really been accelerating this trend. But what is lost when you stop going to brick and mortar locations once you stop having physical shops? There's a lot, I think, that is lost, actually. There's a lot that is also gained as well. Primarily, the social aspect of shopping is lost. The seeing and being seen is lost. The opportunity to explore is lost. This ability to sort of lose yourself in a physical shop, it's less easy to do online. So that happenstance chance that you might sort of find something that you weren't particularly looking for, as you might in a bricks and mortar store, probably isn't going to happen in the same way in a digital or virtual environment quite yet. Right now, the virtual environments where we find ourselves shopping are very much controlled. So the product selection is controlled. The manner by which products are served to you, so you might see, say, strawberries first and then whipped cream second, because those two things often go together. In a bricks and mortar store, strawberries might be next to blackberries, which are next to blueberries. So things are, are sort of arranged like a library by subject, if you will. So the manner by which we interact with individual products, minus the social aspect, is primarily what has been the big shift. But per your point, much has been gained, and the big one really is convenience, right? I mean, we've seen this not to lay everything on, on one company, but Amazon has really been a massive player in shifting not just our expectations around the products we can get by ordering online, but also the speed and the cost with which we acquire those products. It's convenient for the shopper. It is not convenient, nor is it efficient for the retailer. So. Large companies, their business models are predicated on independent contractors or very low paid workers to make the instant delivery or the next day delivery possible. The other thing that is short in those services right now and comes up consistently short in marketing surveys is customer service. If you place an order through an online service for groceries and you get the wrong order, 
what do you do? What is your recourse? There is no store manager to speak to. There is no cashier. Somebody drops them off at your door, takes a photograph of them and runs down your driveway or runs down your apartment stairs. And there's no one to fix a potential problem. So one of the things that makes the physical marketplace and has made the physical marketplace successful over thousands of years is the ability for buyer to meet merchant. And in some cases for buyer to meet producer. When that same transaction occurs in the digital environment, those two actors are divorced. So the buyer never meets either the producer or the retailer. Instead, they meet the delivery person. So that's something that hasn't been fully borne out yet because, again, we're at very beginning stages. And some retailers, Target is a good example, that purchased a, a delivery service and they put their delivery folks through a very specific type of highly personalized training. So when a shopper is assigned to a particular buyer, they develop a rapport. And though it's very temporary, there is a real person to be able to interact with and ask questions with. So that's a service that is slightly at the forefront of the overall changing landscape in retail. Well, you know, shopping really has, as you said, changed through the times, but so too have the physical systems that support brick and mortar or certainly the way we've been shopping this whole time. Can you speak a bit to what physically changes about us getting our items in our cities when we go from a largely brick and mortar shopping experience to one that is predominantly online? One of the things that retailers have been sort of making a hard right turn into are what are called dark stores. And dark stores are former retail outlets that are no longer open or accessible to the public. So they're still stocked, they still operate as stores, but they are largely set up to service as mini warehouses for delivery people, what is called in the industry, last mile delivery. And we're seeing a rapid increase in those. And largely to this point, those stores have been experimental. Most companies that have engaged dark stores are doing it as an experiment. But there's enough experimentation going on that we're starting to see an impact on how these dark stores are affecting the urban landscape, are affecting the streetscape. And that is a marked change. So in which countries have these kinds of dark stores really taken off in? And what are we seeing as far as the, the physical changes you talk about? The UK. Canada and the United States are the three countries that have seen the quickest rise in dark stores. Part of the issue with dark stores is they sort of crept up on us. No one was thinking 20 years ago, hey, let's open a new store, but not open it to the public. That would have just seemed nonsensical at the time. And what's interesting about that is because the stores crept up on us, we have a policy issue right now. We don't have a lot of zoning laws or regulations that sort of restrict or prohibit dark stores. So what typically happens is, let's take a large grocery store, Kroger, for example. Kroger might have a store that they took out a 40-year lease on a particular space. And when they took out the lease, it was a great, really in-demand location. And then what happens is Kroger might figure out, wow, this is a really high-loss location that we have here. Or they might say, boy, it wasn't quite as successful as we thought. There's a competitor right across the street. So that store might become a dark store. Kroger still has to fulfill the remaining 39 years of the lease, 
but there's no law, there's no regulation, there's probably no stipulation in the, in the lease contract that says it needs to be open to the public. So it's a loophole right now because, again, no one saw this phenomenon coming. So what happens is we wind up with these stores that were intended to serve the public and anchor the public in a way. They're sort of the social center for the public. And then what happens is they no longer are able to function as that social center. So that has a really dramatic impact on accessibility to goods, equity in terms of making sure goods are available across all neighborhoods, as well as sort of the general social, but certainly the urban fabric of our cities. I wonder if you can look into your crystal ball a bit and tell us what is the future of this? Again, policy and regulation being relatively new, is now the time to sort of delineate what a dark store can and cannot be? I do think now is the time, although I think we're also on the precipice of some pretty significant change, both in the way we consume, our expectations of that consumption, and the way we engage that consumption. So that's a confluence like none other in history that we're now moving at a rapid enough speed in terms of the way our economy is evolving that it's tough to make any predictions So my sense is, if I had to make a guess, I think we're going to see a lot of experiments. Some will be wildly successful. Most will not. You said that there are certainly pros and cons to this model. To me, what I think I would be allergic to is doing a postmortem after we've seen cities and towns and suffer storefronts that have effectively been, in some small way, not to use this word lightly, but cratered, right? I mean, these are stores that are not used in the way that that people normally use them. And so you could see a real change in how we understand not just main streets, but streets as a whole. To me, this is sort of that push-pull of innovation and disruption, right? E-commerce is a great example of this, where we've seen best laid plans lead to difficulties, say, with how we treat laborers. And A lot of these things really feel tied together in a situation where I worry about regulation coming too late, or I worry about us not knowing what to do about it until our cities have really been hard affected. So I guess my question is, how do you assuage my concerns? I don't know that I can, but I think your concerns are very valid. And I share those same concerns. If we could dial back the clock to 1948, It would have seemed inconceivable at that time across North America and across Western Europe that we would have sprawled our cities in the way that we did. And that sprawl, to some degree, was both fueled by and as a result of the sprawl of retail. As people were able to get access to goods and services that were closer to the homes they were building, the city centers, to some degree, became somewhat less necessary. Canada has a very different history than the United States in that regard. But throughout the late 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, there were many urban centers across North America that suffered and suffered mightily from the loss of retail. So we didn't recognize that as a learned society for 40 or 50 years. Also, we never noticed all that time that we were driving to the big box stores out on the highway that we were polluting our cities and causing global warming. So 50 years later, we were much smarter and we recognized, wow, we did a lot of things wrong. 
my sense is that dark stores and the shifts that we're seeing in retail, we're probably going to do a lot of things very wrong before we realize that we have created a bigger problem or more damage. Dire stuff. <laughs> yeah, sadly. You've talked about the pros a bit, and I wonder if you can speak to any cities around the world where dark stores and dark store models have really helped things, whether or not that's in Canada, the US, or in Latin America, where I understand there's been a big push on this. I'm not yet aware, and, and I've been tracking this pretty closely, of any huge success stories. And I think the reason for that is because of what we were talking about earlier. A lot of these experiments, and I use that word very pointedly, are exactly that. So the proprietary information and data that comes from these experiments is very closely guarded because no company wants to sort of reveal, hey, we're doing this and it was really successful because then every other company will do that as well. I think though the most telling thing about dark stores is even the most digital online retailers, so let's take Amazon, for example, keeps dipping its toe over and over and over again in the bricks and mortar market. So that I think is even perhaps more telling that maybe even a company that has prided itself and built itself on a colossal, unbelievably rapid growth of a digital infrastructure still feels the need to be in the physical bricks and mortar space. That tells me that though it seems like we're moving very quickly toward being able to shop from home, all manner of goods at any time of day, we're probably not quite as close to that as we think we might be. On the next episode of City Space, the last of season two, we're looking at why it's getting hard to find the kind of city housing residents need and want. Questions around supply and demand and nimbyism get a lot of the spotlight when we're talking about why we're increasingly having housing problems. But there are other major factors at play that are making owning a livable place in a city further from everyone's grasp. Why is it so challenging to buy a home for so many of us? City Space is produced by Julia Delorentis Johnston. It's written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guests this episode, Ida Wara, Josue Velasquez-Martinez, and Alex Bitterman for lending us their time to record this show remotely. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your favorite city dweller about City Space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.